I'm Leo Burcher, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 295. I'm your host Annika Harrison and joining me this week is my co-host Pontus Böckmann. Hello! Hey son, hey son Annika, what's up? We're having a good time, I think, and <laughs> we also prepared a really cool interview for everyone. <laughs> right, we have a real live astronomer that we've interviewed, so that's always fascinating to learn something new. And uh, we talked a bit about astronomy, of course, but it was also a lot about climate change, because that's what he does in his spare time, if you will. He is also very engaged in climate change activism and trying to get people to understand the importance of doing something now. Yeah, and I think it's something that we also said a lot of times on the show, that it's like, it's important. It's not something that can be worked on in, in a few decades. <laughs> so, No, exactly. So, with us today is Leonard Burcher. How do you pronounce that, Annika? Burcher. <laughs> Burcher, yeah. So, Leo to me, because he goes by the shorter name of Leo as well. And that's also the name of my son. So I like that a lot. Leo Burcher is a German astronomer, very knowledgeable, fascinating stuff. Yeah. So why don't you just give it a listen? Every now and then we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Dr. Leonard Burcher is an astronomer and staff scientist at the Observatory of Leiden University in the Netherlands. He studied physics in Würzburg at Edinburgh and wrote his PhD at Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg about mid-infrared interferometry of AGN cores, where he worked in a postdoc position between 2012 and 2016. He studies active galactic nuclei in Leiden since 2017 and communicates his research to younger and older audiences. He is also informing the public about the climate crisis in his spare time. Both of that he's doing as a co-founder of the grassroots movement Astronomers for Planet Earth. Leo, welcome to the ESP. Thank you, Annika and Fontus. Oh, very welcome, very welcome. Very interesting to have a real astronomer here on the ESP, I think. So before we go into, we, we want to talk to you about climate change, but uh, could you also tell us a little bit uh, at first about your astronomy research? And I'm very curious, for example, what an AGN core is and where can I get one? <laughs> uh, you wouldn't want to get one. Okay. They are rather not so nice to have. An AGN, this is an acronym for Active Galactic Nucleus, and it stands for a particular phenomenon that is observed in about 1% of galaxies where the, the black hole, the supermassive black hole that is sitting at the center of, as far as we know, all black, all big galaxies is accreting, sucking in, so to say, matter and converting this matter into energy. And this is producing a lot of emission. And you can see these AGNs, especially the brighter variants, which are called quasars, 
until the end of the universe. So they're very bright fires, so to say, that can be seen everywhere. And there is the idea that these AGNs would not just be interesting to observe by itself, but they would also have an impact on the rest of the galaxy. Uh, so the, although the, the black hole is orders of magnitude smaller than the entire galaxy, the idea is that the accretion onto this black hole and the, the expulsion of energy that happens as a consequence of this disturbs the galaxy as a whole and actually transforms galaxies from so-called disk blue galaxies, so galaxies that form a lot of stars, into galaxies that are so-called red and dead, that don't form stars anymore. They only have old stars, which are red instead of blue. And so they would have a massive impact in what is called galaxy evolution. This is still a bit controversial, and there is a lot of discussion and simulations on this, but that's basically the, the wider field that, I, that I'm active <laughs> in. in astronomy. Fascinating stuff, indeed. Is there anything else in your... Uh, this is your speciality, is that, is that right? This is my research specialty. Um, well, I have a second hat as well, because in order to study these, I used, uh, at least in my PhD, but still a little bit now, a technique called interferometry, which is a rather complicated technique and requires also still a, a lot of research and development to get this uh, going. And so I, I also have a hat as an instrument builder, and I'm actually involved in Leiden in building a new instrument for the next biggest telescope, the uh, so-called ELT, Extremely Large Telescope. Astronomers are not, not very subtle. The current generation is called Very Large Telescope. <laughs> well, space we is big. To, <laughs> we wanted to build an overwhelmingly large telescope, uh, but we didn't get the money for it, so now we just <laughs> built a extremely large telescope. Anyway, so in Leiden, we're building, in European collaboration, a new instrument for that, which is going to take probably the first real image of an Earth-like planet that is not the Earth itself. This is, this is not, a, this is perhaps a good uh, lead into our actual topic. This is, of course, not going to be planet B, um, but it might be a planet that, that looks like Earth. And um, we could get an iconic picture of this. Hopefully, that's at least one of the aims of this instrument project that would look like this famous pale blue dot image that you may have seen of Earth. So when, yeah. you know, the, the Voyager probe looked back uh, from far outside our solar system um, and took this very iconic picture of the Earth is just being 0.2 pixels uh, in space in nothingness. And it's so impressive for so many people, also for myself, of course, to see how tiny Earth actually is. And we can perhaps take a similar picture of an exoplanet that is like Earth uh, in a few years with this new instrument. Great. Yeah, this pale blue dot was actually also something, um, as far as I know, that triggered a bit of a climate debate. And your background is in astronomy, but um, how did you get into doing public talks about climate change, where I know you from? <laughs> yeah, this um, this was a gradual process. And actually looking at, back at it now, I sometimes can't believe that it took me so long to become almost a kind of climate activist. Um, because, I mean, it's such a such a big topic now, and it's so important that everyone knows about it and that we do something about it, that I sometimes can't believe that it took so long for me to become really um, engaged with it. But it really started in 2019 only, so just two years ago. In summer, I was at the European Astronomical Society annual meeting. Uh, this is the biggest astronomy meeting in Europe. And at the time, this was before Corona, of course, the meeting happened in person uh, in Lyon in France. About a thousand people were there, uh, twelve hundred people or so, um, and it was the time when there was a heat wave in southern Europe that also struck um, southern France, and it was forty degrees on some days. It was really extremely hot, and 
we were at this university, there was no air conditioning and it was extremely hot also in the, in, in the conference, uh, premises. And it was almost hard to do any work because of the high temperature. We, we were really all sweating and couldn't concentrate so well. And uh, a discussion started actually on Twitter about how much are we ourselves, perhaps at least some part of it responsible for this because astronomy is a very carbon intensive business, right? We run big telescopes in the middle of nowhere and they're usually fueled with uh, gas. Well, usually they're fueled with gas mm-hmm. and we run supercomputers that take a lot of energy and we fly around quite a bit uh, to various remote places and to conferences. So we started to think about what is our role in this and shouldn't we play a more active role, uh, not just in reducing our own carbon footprint, but also communicating this very special perspective that astronomers bring, namely this pale blue dot perspective, the perspective of Earth as a planet and of being so special. Right? I mean, without you don't need to come to, to religious uh, ideas here, but it's it's really, really special that we have this one only planet that we know in the whole universe where life exists and, and people have been searching you know, for E.T. for quite a while and we haven't found him yet uh, or her. Uh, and uh, this might be the right podcast to say <laughs> that there's, of course, lots of UFO sightings, but uh, let's say they're probably not aliens. Um, so th- there, there's also no, there's no reason to believe there's any intelligent life outside Earth at the moment, right? mm-hmm. if you're really coming from a skeptical perspective. Or even on Earth. <laughs> Sometimes even on Earth. Yeah. I mean, we might find some microbial life on, on Mars at some point, or perhaps some primitive life on on some moons of Jupiter. Uh, there is still hope for that, of course, but we haven't seen any indication for any highly evolved life in the universe except for on Earth. And that is pretty special. Yeah, so we need to take care of it. So, I mean, I mean, you don't have to convince us, but if you get the question, how can we prove that climate change is man-made? What, what is your best answer to that? Well, of course, the question comes up. I've, I, amazingly, I still meet people who try to tell me that it's not about us. It's yeah, about I mean, the sun or about something else. That, that, that is... Um, if you want to really go into the details of why we know that it's man-made, it is a complicated question, and you need to, at some point, at least resort to models. But there are some, I mean, in principle, you can you can calculate this yourself in an easy way. I mean, already, as you know, Svante Arrhenius has mm-hmm. already done this and computed how much increase of CO2 would, least, would lead to how much warming up of the planet, so the CO2 sensitivity of the earth and this is not so far away from what the most sophisticated climate models give you that you need something i don't know the exact number i think you have 300 or 400 ppm for 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 one degree increase in temperature mm-hmm. must be less than 300 because we're at 380 now so but anyway this this number of how much increase in co2 you need to increase the temperature by one degree is not too hard to understand and we see that there is this increase in temperature since 1850 we see that there is the increase in CO2 since 1850. And everyone knows, I mean, this is really basic chemistry knowledge, that burning fossil fuels leads to increased uh, or to, to just uh, CO2 emission. But I think this is not really the problem. I mean, yes, there are a few people who would doubt everything and who would doubt climate models. And then they come up with some crude other theories and say, ah, yeah, but clouds aren't perfectly simulated or Perhaps uh, there's, uh, whatever, some mistake in estimating the global surface temperature, which is difficult to measure too. There's all sorts of excuses. But if you look at surveys where, where they ask people, what do you think about climate change? Is this a problem? Is it something that you are concerned about? Then most people in the world, in, in most countries, also in the US, for example, where this has been done 
quite a number of times by the Yale program on, on climate communication. Um, they have done these studies and they find that most people know that it exists, that the climate, uh, that the climate crisis exists, that it is us who are doing this. Uh, most people are convinced of this and most people think it is a problem and something needs to be done. And the fraction of climate deniers, I wouldn't want to call them climate skeptics because I think that would really not do a good job to the actual skeptics. Movement. Correct. Yes. I, I, I want to call them climate deniers because they're not, you know, a skeptic is someone who wants evidence. And the climate deniers are people who, despite evidence, yeah. deny the existence of this effect. So it's re very different to, to, to skeptics. But anyway, so the fraction of climate deniers is very, very small. They're like 10, 15% of the population. And there's no point in discussing with them because mm -hmm. you can't convince them. Right. And again, this, this could be in comparison to the skeptics. I mean, I've taken part in some of the skeptics tests of the German uh, KBOP, where we invite people to prove to us their paranormal abilities. And then they come with their dowsing equipment or whatever, um, and want to prove that they have these paranormal abilities. And I think I've been to 20 or so of these tests. And of course, not a single person could prove that they have paranormal capabilities, but not a single of them was convinced after the test that they didn't have these capabilities. They all th said, Oh, but well, it was full moon or, ah, but this, whatever, <laughs> there was a mobile phone in the vicinity. They all had some excuse for why it didn't work in that particular case. So you cannot convince these people, but you don't have to convince them. Uh, it's enough to, to get those people on board who know that, that there is a problem and to get them engaged and get them uh, to become active. Yeah, I think that's a really true thing. I think what we sometimes say is you have to reach the like the gray zone between those who are already on your side and those who are completely disagree. And with that, I would like to know what what can we do as people who vote, like politically, but also individually to improve the situation? Yeah, I mean, there, there you touch on a very important and, and sometimes also controversial point of Uh, the question of how much is their individual responsibility versus uh, systematic or system responsibility. And I think the answer is not black and white. Again, like you said before, it means the, the, there's the gray zone. So th there was a study by some UN organization finding that the amount of carbon dioxide emitted, of course, depends very strongly on the wealth that a person has. And the 1% wealthiest of this pop of this planet, where probably many of us belong to in, in Europe, are by far, uh, have by far more carbon emissions than, than the 50% poorest of this planet. So if you are among these richest people, then I think it is your individual responsibility to try to minimize your carbon footprint. So fly less, eat less meat, consider if you really need two or three cars or perhaps none at all. And all these things do come into play there. So I think it is important for, for several reasons, not so much because it changes how the world is, right? I mean, if a few percent of these 1% behave differently, it won't really change the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, but it has a signal. It, it, it sends a message. Uh, if, if I do this, we don't have a car, for example, and people sometimes ask us, how do you do this? I mean, you're, you have a family with kids. How, how can you do this without a car? It's no problem for us at all, actually, really not at all. I mean, of course, we live in the city. It's, it's not a problem for us at all. So this sends a message, and I think that's way more important than the actual emission reduction. But then what else can you do? Yes, I mean, voting is, of course, the most important democratic uh, duty that every one of us has. But as we see or have just seen recently in, in the German national elections, there is now a very complex constellation. We don't know yet what government we will get. And it's not enough to vote, I would say. I mean, it's even, there will be some coalition in the end. At the moment, it looks like it will be social democrats, greens and liberals. And there will be some sort of compromise between what they want to do in terms of climate 
it won't be enough. We can already predict that, I think. Mm. And so it will be important to continue to uphold the pressure to go to the streets, demonstrate, be on rallies, write to politicians, give talks about the climate crisis, let people know that it is a real problem. It's something that is not just, you know, it's not problem number 25 of 500. It's, in my view at least, one of the most pressing problems that we have and, and that we need to fix. We meaning the relatively rich people in this world, because we also created the problem. Um, so it's it's something that, that will affect mostly, of course, the global south, but, but we have to we have a, a greater moral obligation to fix it because it's uh, because we, we produced it in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, there's a number of things that we can do individually to contribute both ourselves to reduce emissions and to pressure and, and, and support others to, to do that. Mm -hmm. What then can astronomy help us in beating this problem? I think astronomy can help us in, in a number of ways. I mean, we are the, the two main pillars that, that we have built, for example, this grassroots organization, Astronomers for Planet Earth, on are reducing our own carbon footprint. I mean, this comes very much to the individual obligation. We, as astronomers, as a, dis as a discipline, have a relatively large carbon footprint, and we need to reduce it for a number of reasons. I mean, one reason is the moral reason. Uh, it, it's just amoral to continue producing so much CO2 when we know that this causes lethal problems in the world, but also to show to others that we're dealing with this problem in a serious way, that we're taking this seriously. I mean, I, I cannot be on a climate rally today and then hop on a flight to Hawaii on the next day. That, that just doesn't go together. So I, I need to show, I need to walk the talk, as they say. I need to show that what I'm saying, I really feel and I, I'm really serious about this. So that's for me, the most important reason why we need to reduce our own carbon footprint. And this has the additional impact that we can demonstrate that we can continue to collaborate in a global way without all the emissions. I mean, astronomy is a very international field. Um, I have collaborators on almost, on actually not on almost, but on every continent of this planet who I regularly meet via Zoom. And we can demonstrate that we can do this and we don't actually have to travel around all the time in order to continue our work. So that, that's the one big pillar reducing our own emissions, where I think we can contribute and show what can be done and how global collaboration is possible. And the second pillar, which is much more important, but it has to come as a second, in my view, because we first have to show that we're serious and dealing with this ourselves. Anyway, the second part is then to communicate the wonder of the universe somehow. I mean, it's mm -hmm. besides all the, the scientific and technical aspects and the, the many numbers that we can come up with, Astronomy is just so fascinating, right? I mean, everyone who sees pictures of planets and solar nebula and planetary nebula and, and, and galaxies and the whole universe as, as a whole, it's just so fascinating and it's so amazing for so many people. And it, it all in all this huge universe and all this fascinating diversity of structures and colors, there's just this one little point that is our Earth where we know that complex life exists. And that is really, that is really, really special. And, and just you know, creating this sense of awareness, this awareness of, wow, we are really, really special. We don't have to go back to pre-Copernican times where you think everything rotated around the earth, but in some degree, we are there now, right? We have, we know more than 3000 exoplanets, but none of them hosts complex life as far as we know. Uh, so, so creating this awareness of how special the earth is and that it's the only place that we have. I think that is an even stronger contribution than we, than, than anything else that we can contribute as astronomers. Yeah, exactly. Like we can pretty much say, like this is literally our whole world. <laughs> like it's, there's yeah. no, no other. I would like to know a bit in a different direction. Are there astronomical influences on the climate? 
Oh yes, of course, very many. I mean, you know, for example, you can you can study in our own solar system what difference it makes whether or not a planet orbits in the right distance from the sun. Planets that are very far away are, of course, much colder than planets that are very close to the sun. You can also study what happens to planets that are in solar systems that have um, very small stars. Uh, for example, we, we do know some planets that are that are Earth-like, probably in the sense of have roughly the same size and roughly the same surface temperature, but they are in orbit around very small stars like uh, Proxima Centauri, the, the nearest uh, star to our Earth. We know that there is an almost Earth-like planet, but the star is so small that the distance between planet and star, in order to have the same uh, well, let's say room temperature, roughly, the distance is so small that this planet is probably tidally locked. So like the moon is on the Earth, we always see the same side of the moon, right? no matter where we are on the Earth and, and what time we look, it's always the same side. And the same is probably happening to this planet. And that means that one side will be heating up extremely, and the other side will be extremely cold. There's other impacts from uh, an astronomical point of view. For example, the fact that we have a moon, a relatively large moon, is probably helping to stabilize the spin axis of the Earth. And that, again, helps to keep the climate on Earth relatively stable on the long term, which is very important for the development of complex life. It also helps that we have a giant planet in our solar system, Jupiter, and a few others that are almost as big, because that attracts, well, lethal asteroids. Uh, that so they miss us. Get deflected. Mm -hmm. So they miss us, yes. The so, so there's a number up. of these... Yeah, there's a number... It's like a cleanup, yeah. So there's a number of important influences. Also the, also, the sun itself, of course, has an influence on the climate. I mean, if the sun gets much warmer or much colder, then that will have an impact on the Earth. But these astronomical effects happen on timescales typically of millions of years or even billions of years. Right? This is really, really long timescales, and, and these effects are, are slow. What we observe with our climate at the moment since about 1850, is an increase in the global temperature that we have never seen before yeah. in this speed. Right? I mean, that we have seen these temperatures before in, in the Earth's uh, climate history, but the change from what we call pre-industrial times to now, where it's already one degree warmer, within just 100 years or so, we haven't seen that ever before. Mm. And, and we know the climate history now back many, many thousands, uh, even millions of years to some degree. Yeah. Um, so that, that is what is special. If you want to stick your chin out and make a prediction, how much warmer do you think the Earth will be before we have beaten this, assuming that we will beat it? Do we know? And how can we know? Um, I think the, the extreme scenarios of 5 to 8 degrees warming are unrealistic at this point. Mm -hmm. um, this is just based on, for example, there's a very good website called Climate Action Tracker where they look at what are the current climate policies and what are promised climate policies and what impact will they have. There is some range of the predictions that is partly due to political uncertainty of what will be implemented and how will people react to certain policies, but also there are some uncertainties in the model. I mean, keep in mind that the 1.5 degree goal that we're still trying to follow from the Paris Agreement is essentially a goal, or, or, or the, the converting this to CO2 emissions means the probability of whatever 50 or 66 percent or so of not exceeding that temperature as any scientific model it's all associated with with yeah. uncertainties but i think coming to your question of how much warmer will it get until we take serious action i very much hope and expect yeah i would almost predict that something real in in, in the terms of real action will happen in the next few years yeah. Uh, because we're seeing the impacts now. I mean, everyone is seeing them now. Right? We have these extreme droughts in Western uh, America. We have these floods 
we had these floods now in Central Europe, and we have the, the bushfires in Australia. So all these things are really helping to build the momentum. I very much expect that within the next few years, we will have uh, quite some some changes in, in climate policy. Yeah, it really feels to me like there's been a sort of an alarm, alarm clock going off uh, this year, especially during the summer. It's been building up, but with with floods in, in Germany and big fires in Siberia, big fires in the US. I hope that there's been some sort of turning point now that people are really interested in fixing this because they see the effects. Do, do you agree that, that that the change has happened during this year, maybe? I, I think there definitely is a change in perception. I'm not sure if it's just this year in particular. I, I would more attribute it really to Greta Thunberg and, and the whole Friday for Future movement, which has really got things rolling. But of course, keep in mind that despite all these changes in perception, when it comes to actually voting, you know, asking people, okay, so do you want to vote for climate policy? People are still, uh, let's say, they, they're not quite following what they say they think. Yeah. Right? When, when it comes to, okay, so do you really want to now have massive investments in renewable energy and have perhaps wind power everywhere? Um, then people still say, well, uh, not so sure. So there is a little bit of disconnect between what people know and what they're convinced of and what they really want to happen next door. So we need to somehow still find a way to, to bridge this gap and get people to commit to action. Right. And that is only slowly happening, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that it will happen. I mean, I'm moderately optimistic in that sense. If we end up with uh, three degrees warmer than, rather than the 1.5 degrees, how bad will it be? What, what, what would the Earth look like at that point? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm, I'm perhaps not the authority to ask for here. But what I can say from, from reading uh, papers by climate scientists is that there is some uncertainty of what will happen. There, there, there is the, the probability that is a bit um, debated also among climate scientists, as far as I see, that we have these so-called tipping points. It's not quite clear what will happen beyond two degrees, because some of the systems on Earth might change their state somehow. So, for example, if we continue to increase the temperature and the tundra in, in Siberia starts to warm up, then the um, or the, the permafrost there starts to warm up, then you get these uh, famous methane emissions there. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And if you get lots of emissions from there, then this will lead to extra warming. And then that will lead to the melting of the North Pole permanently. And the melting of the North Pole leads to reduced albedo, which again is an astronomical quantity. So it's the fraction of reflectivity, essentially the reflectivity of the Earth. And that will decrease if you melt the ice, because then you get, instead of white ice, you get black, almost black sea. Hmm. And that will increase the temperature further. So there are a couple of these so-called tipping points that when they are reached, that will possibly set off more warming. And there, there is the risk that if we set off enough of these, that we get into a really different state of the Earth that will not easily be recoverable. And something like this, for example, although this is very far away to what will happen on Earth, but something like this happened on Venus, where uh, at some point more and more greenhouse gases accumulated in the atmosphere, leading to ever warmer temperatures. And now we have a temperature, an atmosphere that is dominated by CO2. And uh, yeah, no life is possible there no, at right. all anymore. Mm. If we look at the optimistic side, we quite often hear about extreme ends of predictions, but what do you think is the average change in temperature for the next, say, 15 years? Like, how, Will there be minimal changes and how will these minimal changes maybe affect the climate? It depends really on us. I mean, 
whether or not we produce more and more emissions, we get a different temperature on this planet. So it, it, it really is open as to what comes out. From what I know, the, the most pessimistic scenarios that are still included in the IPCC report are very unlikely now. So that is somehow an optimistic uh, good news, so to say. But the best scenario, namely keeping below 1.5 degrees, is also extremely unlikely now. And the 1.5 degree is not just a number that someone wrote down on paper. It's really a number that would keep the climate the damage from the climate uh, crisis to a very acceptable level. And, and I mean, we have seen this year, right? We are at about one degree warming. We have seen what one degree warming already does. So do we really want to try out in our only home 1.5 or 2 degree warming? Yeah. I, I would rather not. <laughs> so I, I think it's not so much a question of, you know, are, are we getting 2 degrees or 3 degrees? It should more be something like, this is our only home. Let's do everything we can, right? I mean, if you're, like Greta Thunberg always says, if your house is on fire, you don't go somewhere else and, and discuss, uh, should we do something or should we call the, the fire brigade next year or in 10 years? You do it now. You do it immediately. Right. Just to get all the speculation out of uh, uh, the way here, could we be theoretically extremely lucky and, and have a some sort of volcanic eruption or a changing solar activity that just saves us? Is that possible? Uh, sure. I mean, it shouldn't be plan possible, A. Right? It, it, it shouldn't even be plan C, I would say. But sure. I mean, uh, yes, it is possible. Volcanoes erupt, as we have just seen uh, on La Palma. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, we don't get a major volcanic eruption that yeah. would really change the Earth's climate. I think getting a volcano that would undo the damage to the atmosphere that we have done is just extremely unlikely. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, of course, it's not impossible, you know, how these things work. It would work. probably it create a lot of other problems as well. So it's and not it, would, it would create a lot of other problems as well. And also it wouldn't actually help us because at some point all the dust uh, from the volcano... It would settle. Would, ...would settle, right, and would mm -hmm. go away again. And then we'd have even more of a problem because we, right. we thought that we had solved it. Okay. So I don't think we should rely at this point on any on any crazy things and we should also not rely in my view but this is for example where i differ from also some others in, in, in skeptical societies i also think we shouldn't rely on on some fancy future technology that isn't invented yet and i always give the the example or the, the comparison to astronomical projects if i want to start a new satellite mission now mm. um, which may fly in 10 years then i need to show to my funding agency that the technology that i need to run that mission is ready and there is a thing called technological readiness level which i need to achieve in order to use that technology to achieve my scientific goals so if i want to whatever send a new satellite out that measures uh, that, that finds 10 new earth-like planets then i need to show that the, the imaging systems and so on that i want to build for that are actually capable of doing this and that these systems exist now or at least can be developed in the next few years and now back to earth i think we now have the project to make the Earth climate neutral, uh, carbon-free, so to say, or free of CO2 emissions until 2050 or possibly earlier. And the question is, how do we do this? And we have the very high technical readiness level solution, namely stop burning fossil fuels. And we have all sorts of fantastic ideas of, you know, capturing carbon and building new nuclear power plants and all these things that in principle exist, but they're not really ready to solve the problem in the next few years. And so that's why I think we, we shouldn't... I mean, if these things exist at some point, then great, of course, we should use them. But we shouldn't rely on them at all, no. but rather follow plan, plan A and actually reduce emissions. So you already mentioned technology. I still want to ask you a question about that. If you could magically invent any one technology that could 
help us uh, deal with climate change and that we would have it today and ready, what would that technology look like um, and how far away are we actually from it? Like, just say something that solves it immediately. <laughs> well, if we had a way to actually capture the carbon from the atmosphere and do this at a cost that is lower than the cost of burning it, and that's the important part because we have, I mean, in principle, we can capture carbon from the atmosphere, but the cost of doing it is 10 times higher. And we also don't really know what to do with it once we captured it. But so if this technology existed, that would solve the whole problem. Yes. Because then if it was cheaper, right, then, then I could tell you, okay, you want to go on a plane trip to Taiwan for, for fun. Okay. Please do that. It costs you a thousand euros and 10 euros of these thousand euros will be used to undo the damage. Okay. Fine. Then we can have a business model to do that. Yeah. And at some point, it will probably be cheaper to just use renewable fuels, you know, synthetic fuels, because the others will just not exist anymore or be too expensive to use. But that would indeed solve the problem. Yeah. yeah. But we shouldn't, again, we shouldn't, yeah. we shouldn't wait now until no, this No, we shouldn't rely exists. on that. We shouldn't yeah. be doing wishful thinking here. We should do what we know is working and that right. is i mean the, the other technology that would help would be a magic wand right, uh, right. <laughs> we could just do okay. ta-da and then the temperature would decrease by 1.5 degrees uh, or the co2 level would decrease by so and so much that would also solve the problem mm -hmm. but unfortunately that magic wand doesn't exist either mm -hmm. we're, we're drawing a little bit to towards the end of the interview here is there any particular area of climate change or astronomy that you wish that people would understand better um, well, perhaps start with astronomy now, because this is really mm -hmm. uh, closer to home. I would wish that people understood better our position, so to say, or our place in the universe, namely how lucky we are to have this wonderful blue planet and that there really isn't so much else around where we could go to. I mean, this is, you know, in, 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 if you follow pop culture and you see all these Elon Musk and, and all these other people who claim that they can go to Mars anytime, essentially, and uh, just populate a couple other planets. This is all fascinating. I also follow this with fascination, but it's not a solution because it will not be possible to resettle billions of people, certainly not within the next hundred years, to another planet. So this is this is fantastic. We should follow this. It's, 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 it's fun to watch and it gives lots of inspiration, but it doesn't really help. So I would really want people to understand how special this planet is and that it's really, like Carl Sagan, the skeptic and astronomer, uh, said it's really the only home we've ever known. And, and I think if people understood this really in the depth of their heart, I think they would act differently. Mm. I think they would really, they would they would know that, that hey, we're so incredibly lucky, uh, most of us, at least, in, mm. the, in the rich world, right? I mean, this is something not to... Not to forget, I mean, I'm not talking about people who have troubles just, you know, staying alive, staying fed, uh, staying healthy. This is a different problem somehow. But people in the rich world, they, they should really understand this better. Yeah. Now, it's fascinating to see how, by looking out on the stars, we have come to realize how unique the place is where we are looking from, if you will. Yeah, that's true. And this is actually also the research that's happening right now. And people are building instruments that look back on the Earth. This is actually even started with Carl Sagan. He, he did this for the, um, I think it was with the Voyager, no, sorry, not the Voyager, the, the Galileo probe that went to the Jupiter system and used it to study, to, to essentially find out whether Earth harbors life. Right? I mean, of course, he knows the answer. But anyway, can we use the, set, the, the, the data from this probe to answer that question? And we're doing this now as well so that there are new studies planned to launch missions, for example, in, in, in lunar orbits, look back to the Earth, and just from the spectrum that you get from the distance, 
try to see, can we conclude that there is life? Mm-hmm. Unmistakably conclude there must be life on this planet. <laughs> Again, of course, we know the answer, but the question is, can we actually from a, from a spectrum derive that information? Yeah. Earth is a very good, uh, the only reference point that we have, yes. if you want to say it in a technical term. <laughs> and what do astronomers for planet Earth have to do with that, with climate change, with astronomy, with changing things, improving things? So Astronomers for Planet Earth is really a grassroots organization. So we have zero funding at the moment. It's, it's, it's essentially a, a collection of astronomers who are you know, working at different institutes all around the world, mostly in North America and in Europe. But we have now astronomers from about 67 countries. And what unites us is the, the this idea that we as astronomers share this special perspective that we want to convey to the general public and, and, and discuss with the general public to say, look, how, how special are we? And, and actually, you know, become active in talking about this and also become active in, as I said before, these two pillars and in reducing our own carbon footprint. We do this in, in various uh, formats. For example, we organized um, various sessions at international conferences, um, published carbon footprint analysis of astronomical institutes, of observatories, There's a series of papers that appeared just in the September issue of Nature Astronomy. And also in last year's September issue, there was a series of articles, which are, I think, quite interesting to read, to know what is this intersection between astronomy and uh, climate communication. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants a very objective and reliable source regarding climate change, where do you think they should turn to? Where do you think, do you do... Astronomers for Planet Earth have a website with collection of information, or do you have any other things that you want to promote? Yes, we we have a website with information. Actually, this website is about to be upgraded quite substantially, so feel free to look at, look back at it. Hopefully, in a month or two, the website is just astronomersforplanet.earth. Yes, dot Earth is apparently oh. <laughs> top level domain. Very Didn't good. Know that before either, and we do have references and, and resources for people who want to know more about it. I mean, people with some sort of scientific background can really go just directly to the IPCC, which is the global authority in terms of, of climate. They are compiling um, studies by climate scientists from all over the world and try to publish some sort of uh, meta study or, or review of what is really the state of knowledge in, in the climate sciences. And for example, in the most recent assessment report uh, that they published in August or September, They again have an executive summary or a summary for policymakers, it's also called, which is just 10 or 20 pages and it's really readable by everyone. I mean, again, everyone with some sort of basic scientific understanding at least. And you can really just go there and, and you have some, they have some fantastic graphs. And one of them I also showed in my talk at the German skeptics uh, meeting where they show both the reconstructed global average surface temperature over the last 2000 years. And then they show for the last 150 years, what climate models predicted for the temperature. And they include, in, in one of these models, they include everything they know, solar activity, volcanic activity, and all sorts of other natural activities, but not the human factor. And then you can see a very wiggly curve that doesn't change, essentially. So it, it starts at zero, and it ends at roughly zero. And then you see a second curve that has all these factors in, and additionally, the human factor And then you get to the curve that is now at about uh, plus one degree warming. So they have these very impressive figures. Again, of course, you need to have some basic trust that they know what they're doing. But then it's quite impressive yeah. uh, to, to see all these figures. Yeah, As graphs go, and I know the one you talk about, it is very uh, striking. Yeah. And in terms of trust, I think you have to just to, to add to this to this particular point, if, you may, if I may, 
I mean, I, at the moment, my house has a problem in the roof. I don't know exactly where the problem comes from, but I have a roofer here who knows what the problem is, hopefully, and will fix it. Hmm. And I don't need to know. I mean, in this case, it's probably simple enough that I can also understand what the problem is. But anyway, I trust that person to fix it. And people usually do this. They don't need to understand in detail whatever, how their heating system works or even how their computer works. They trust that we have experts who do this. Right? And we do have experts who understand the Earth climate. Uh, that's not astronomers. Uh, we, we can convey some of this, but we are not the experts on Earth climate. But we have climate scientists, and we should trust them. Uh, you know, th there's there's a not every single one, perhaps, but we should trust the whole body of them. And there is such a huge agreement among climate scientists that that this is real, and it's us, and it's a problem. That it's really hard for me to understand why people just would say, oh, no, I'd rather trust some, you know, some, some funky politician who just doesn't want to believe it and then says, oh, it's just an invention by the Chinese. <laughs> you probably know which politician I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That, that pretty much um, concludes the interview. But before we go, I would like to ask you, where can people go to find out more about you, your work, your activism and follow what you do? Um, well, um, if people want to connect uh, or, or just uh, read more about what I do, of course, that's uh, very welcome. I have a webpage that's ileo.de, ileo.de. If you send me a message, I might say why this name existed. Uh, they can also follow on Twitter or just get in contact. They're just Leo Burcher, one word. And um, yeah, of course, I mean, get in contact with Astronomers for Planet Earth. We have all sorts of resources on our public webpage. Yeah, I mean, on my webpage, you would find articles that I write and also other talks that I give, um, sometimes now also recordings of talks if they have happened online. But yeah, please, if, if you're interested in this, by all means, also get in contact. Um, my email address is also online on that webpage. Happy to, to get in contact with, uh, with people and, and discuss more. We will put all those links in the show notes. Yes. Okay, Leo, that's, that's it. Thank you very much for your time, for your patience, for your answers. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Annika and Pontus. So that was the interview with Leonard Burcher. Did you also really enjoy it, Pontus? <laughs> Very interesting. And we don't have a, too many interviews nowadays. We used to have it every other episode, but that's been sort of drifting a little bit. So it's good to be back with, with a really interesting interview now. Yeah, exactly. Like I noticed we didn't have that many this year. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I really enjoyed it too. And I think he raises very important points in the regards of we don't have many planets that are habitable. <laughs> and he, again, he is an example of what we have always wished for and always say that we need more of. And that is a very good science communicator. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of fantastic scientists out there, but... Not all of them are good communicators, yeah. and it's uh, it's a pleasure to to meet the ones that are exactly. So that concludes our show and our episode mm -hmm. two hundred and ninety five. We'll hear you or talk to you again next week, and until next week, goodbye. Hello, tschüss, bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats 
to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can.